Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, my guest today is the renowned economist, Lord Jim O'Neill. Known for calling it right, his are views that are sought around the world by leaders in government, captains of industry alike. As chief economist of Goldman Sachs, he coined the BRICS to describe the emerging economies of Brazil, Russia, India, and China as the superstars of the future. And as commercial secretary to the Treasury, he found his true north as champion for the Northern Powerhouse. And his power to predict saw him raising the public health spectre of superbugs long before today's pandemic. Receiving his peerage in 2015 as Baron O'Neill of Gatley, he did so with his motto, always try your best. Well, let's give it your best today, Jim. Welcome <laughs> to Changemakers. I'd like to start there, actually, with, with, uh, with the motto, always try your best. The world in, in 2020 trying its best against a very big enemy um, in, in the pandemic. Looking at this world from the lens of an economist, is, is it trying its best? How do you see it? So in the context of how you described my CV um, and my experiences, a very important influence on my mind throughout the pandemic is, is the fact that uh, I dreamt up the BRIC acronym on the back of uh, 9-11 in uh, 2001. Uh, within days of that horrific events, um, my, my mind, to my surprise, started deviating into thinking that there was some sort of underlying deeper message to the world that without you know the world had, or some part of the world had had enough of americanization let's call it and that was the sort of more subtle thing behind the horror and that's what started me off on the whole thing about the bricks and of course as in every intro i get to anything the brick thing is always mentioned it's stamped on my forehead for the rest of my life so i know that how i reacted in that crisis changed my professional life and so it's it's made me realize that how all of us as individuals or everybody as leaders of businesses or companies or governments or perhaps even countries how we respond in a crisis uh, including the circumstances in which the crisis has happened can be uh, the making of uh, that person that leader that country and so on so uh, and with it you know the the infamous motto never let a crisis go to waste I'm a huge, huge fan of that. Mm, I mean, I'm just wondering, you know, the acronyms that we're going to be creating in the kind of the next chapter in the post-coronavirus mm. future. I mean, I mean, is is it still the BRICS? I mean, do you see the future being dominated by very different countries than perhaps we're seeing at the moment? Well, I'll be, I'll, I'm going to just finish for now with the previous theme where I've answered, and then I'll come on to this. You know, the, what, I, what I feel coming out of this crisis about business in general is something you and I have touched on in the past, but I feel it even more now, is what I'd call profit with purpose. But let's come back to that. Um, on, on the BRICS, uh, I, I joked last week, it was the, the 12th anniversary of the BRICS political leaders meeting. These guys uh, helped make it famous by actually having a, a, a political leaders club named after it. And uh, I, I tease them that they often often forget that they never asked me whether they could do that. But anyhow, I, I joked on a call linked to that um, last week that uh, maybe I should have called it X because in the, in the second decade of it, neither Brazil have been particularly successful, to put it mildly. Uh, and when I reflect back uh, 19 years ago, because we're very close to the day of 19 years ago when I first published about the topic, and China has, has actually continued to uh, outperform what 
we assumed would be happening by now. And India's pretty close to what we did. Uh, but of course, the second decade for Brazil and Russia has been very disappointing. Um, so maybe it should have been X. Or, or put, it, put it like this, if Brazil and Russia don't have a, a better first half of this decade, then perhaps people will eventually forget about the acronym. Right. Well, we've gone bricks to X. Let's, let's go back to profit with purpose, because, I mean, you've mentioned that. I mean, I suppose right now, um, the ultimate realization of that is is in the vaccine, AstraZeneca, and its decision to, to not make any profit from from its work on on a, on a vaccine, do you think that? I mean, obviously, it's not its, it's share price hasn't necessarily re- reflected that noblesse oblige, if you like. I mean, is capital following the idea? Do you think that 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 purposeful business is a really important part of our future? So, I, I think the whole pharmaceutical response and the way uh, AZ and Pfizer have, have been and others. Uh, including their own cooperation with each other and with biotechs and the way the markets have priced them is amongst the enormous number of fascinating aspects just within the the world of finance about this crisis. And uh, I I don't know is the answer, but uh, I'll give you some somewhat contradictory answers. Uh, But it leaves me hopeful. You're an economist, Jim. You're you're entitled to give me contradictions. It goes, it goes with the territory. You want a few of the on the one hand and on the other. <laughs> on the one hand, yeah, and on the other. Come on, give us that. <laughs> but the most the most important thing, which which frankly more broadly leave, leaves me, in many ways, so optimistic about the, the big picture of the future. It, you know, given my experience on antimicrobial resistance and my knowledge of the of what motivates a lot of big pharmaceutical companies, somebody would have said to to you or I. Uh, this time, the end of November 2019, that within another 12 months, three pharmaceutical companies would have developed a new vaccine. People would have said you were completely nuts. And the speed at which these guys have done what they've done is not only in itself, obviously, thank God, fortunate, given that it now gives us some kind of end date. But the more I, I reflect on it, the more I think that this could be a game changer about the whole way these firms think about the speed of their response to these kind of external uh, pandemic shocks, as well as, I hope, uh, antibiotic resistance. You know, the general view a year ago, and, and still is amongst a lot of vaccine skeptics, that you know, you're, you're very lucky to find a vaccine that ever really works. And if you do, it'll be over a decade. And people sites, uh, HIV and what have you, and, 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 and others. And so it's truly spectacular. But even more broadly, it makes me think that if you get the right attention on the topic and give with the, given the, the power of technology and science and determination, we can crack all sorts of problems. And of course, the huge applicability for climate change. Interestingly, when I co-wrote Mission, I remember interviewing an entrepreneur that said, Make no mistake, we're living in a world of dog years that actually, you know, every every new year is like seven old ones. And it, it strikes me that a lot of the debate we've heard this year about, you know, mumps and AIDS and how long it took to create sort of mitigation strategies and vaccines felt almost like, you know, there was one world which was the scientists and the technologists that were looking at how fast they could do things. And then a political and economic world that hadn't really caught up to the fact that change might happen very quickly. I mean, is that is that how you see it? Yeah, completely. I, I, I sort of, in a sort of very narrow, um, 
subjective way. I, I, I joked to myself many weeks that maybe I should have been a prop trader through this crisis because as soon as April, and I, I'm very, very, I couldn't have done some of this because it might have got close. It, it, it wouldn't have been insider trading, but I certainly felt reasonably well informed. As soon as April, I became pretty, pretty persuaded that before the year was over, we'd have at least two vaccines. And I would speak to a lot of people that have been in the in the health world, health economics world, and the broad health policy world, and they were like, "You don't have a clue what you're talking about." And and I'd tell you, ninety five percent of the people I'd engage with would say that. Mm. Uh, and here and here we are. And going going, you know, not forgetting the, the the original question about how the markets price these things. You know, on the one hand, for AZ to become so a valuable member part of the UK stock market linked to this is kind of silly because obviously they're not going to make anything like the revenue stream uh, that they typically do with a new new drug fine. But maybe it's a deeper message about assigning value. I was, gonna, I was thinking exactly you're saying, is it about a new definition of value? So I think it could be partly that. I mean, uh, in parallel with this, one of the most fascinating things to me about individual sectors and stock markets is like let's go to the energy business and uh how you have some solar storage or solar power generated businesses in the states that are now worth more than exxon uh look at look in the auto sector of course with tesla worth more than by considerable distance any conventional auto firm what you're talking about is reminding me, I interviewed um, as part of Changemakers, David Petraeus, who was the um, US general in, in um, yeah. Iraq, who came up with Surge um, as, his, as his theory of military sort of, you know, advance. And it's got me thinking that you mentioned climate change is that will Surge become the commercial strategy of actually getting hold of the world's big problems and putting capital ideas and talent together to actually solve the big questions of our time. Is that where capitalism might go? I mean, it gives me huge, huge uh, hope. Um, I'm sure that, that there are obviously various things that, that could come to oppose it. Uh, and, you know, there's all sorts of dilemmas out there. But it, So I'm being presumptuous, but I'm sort of assuming we're over the absolute peak uh, problematical part of this crisis. And that's at the core of that is this thing about the vaccines and we'll have them to distribute soon and it'll get bigger and bigger but um it, it sort of gives me great inspiration about this surge idea you describe because it it, it shows that you can have a hugely more successful response to some existential threats in a way that you know most people just mentally even now aren't prepared to sort of consider and uh there's endless examples that i come across uh, and it's quite exciting with it particularly generationally a lot of young people throw ideas at me because i, I get involved in vc investment quite a bit as you as you probably recall um number of ideas i get from young people about quite quite dynamic things to do with climate change is fantastic and uh you know i think the markets are showing a rather persuasive sign if you come up with some initiative that, that, that can be commercially successful to, to help beat climate change, the markets will reward you very quickly. Mm. I mean, so, so when, you, when you hear 
I mean, closer to home, and we'll move off the we'll move off the pandemic in a minute. But when you hear um, things like our chancellor's statement about you know a, a pretty sort of gloomy future at the moment in terms of the um, economic prospects, I mean, does this put you back into the into the V camp in terms of the way that you know the economy might bounce back, or actually, do, do does this mean that countries like the UK just move into the slow lane from from here on in? Listen, I think the U. Well, three things. First of all, I am in the V camp, but that's despite UK policymaking, and we can get into that. Secondly, the UK has had a very bad crisis in terms of the country's ability to do stuff, with the huge exception that one of these three vac- early vaccine finders is British. But in terms of uh, how effective our civil service has been, and of course our government, you know, this this should cause for serious, serious reflection on the institutional uh, nature of how we operate. Because whichever way you look at it, in a relative league table, the UK has underperformed what it should have been capable of doing. But uh, but but notwithstanding, my first point is, I, yeah, I am in the V camp. And the you know the third thing I would say is. Let's going back to my opening comment. Let's see whether any of the current policymakers or their advisors themselves can learn from a crisis, because you know there's going to be other challenges down the road, and how people respond is crucial. I should remind you, as an economist, Jim, that hope is not a strategy. I mean, but I mean, no, I mean do, do, you, do you do you get a sense? I mean, well, actually, let, let, let's move on because I think I suppose the question is, is that you know it you sort of listening to you is I, I suppose there is a difference between optimism and positivity in in the things that you're, you're talking about I mean I think as a genuinely positive person you know that there's a positive outlook that we could we could bounce back let's talk about where that comes from now we've we've both got um, a bit of northern soul uh, different sides of the different sides of the Pennines and of course you know I'm, I'm sort of thinking about you, I mean, we know the story now, as you, you mentioned, Bricks, you've worked in government, there are lots, but let's go back. I mean, you know, I, as I understand it, it was a, an A-level textbook about North America that first got you interested in um, in economics. Tell us what we've got to uh, got to thank for the for the original inspiration. Uh, let me throw in another. The, the, funny enough, somebody in China was quizzing me about it the other day, and they were they found it very amusing, my answer, but it's true. So when it, when it came... I was when I was doing my O levels. I was a pretty, pretty disinterested pupil. I didn't really. I just. I was a very naughty teenager that basically played football. Um, but my, because of my dad and the expectations surrounding my my sisters who were all older than me and myself, you know, it, there was a presumption we would do A levels and then go on to something. Um, and I had no idea what I'd wanted to do at A levels. And and here's the story that's key to your question I, I i went to explore uh doing biology and and the biology uh room happened to be next door to the economics room um, and the queue to get into the biology room to quiz the teacher was so big i uh, i thought i can't be bothered with this and the queue to go in the economics room was empty so i went in there so it's like sliding doors for economists i mean you could literally <laughs> exactly. Well, I suppose maybe that explains some of the some of the interest in in, there you um, go. Have... in, in, in vaccines. In... There you go. Never thought of that one. So that's it. So it started from that, and then what, then what happened was, I was already quite interested in uh, 
geography, so I knew I was going to do that. And um, in geography, we had to choose specialist topics, and I decided uh, that I'd focus on North America. And to my surprise, I found myself in, in towards the end of that first of the two years of my A-levels, many, many midweek evenings when I get home, being absolutely fascinated by opening a book into different pages of America's geography and really, really seriously taking it all in. So it's physical geography or it's economic geography? So it was economic geography that really got it. It, it, it was the physics that attracted me, the physical geography that attracted me to it. But I found myself being really stimulated by the economics of the geography. So the whole issue of how the steel industry built up in Pennsylvania. I, I, I remember it now as a, I was lying on the floor in my, in my parents' freezing cold back room sitting by the electric fire that we all had in those days. Uh, but I, I, I would spend a good two hours sort of being, you know, absolutely fascinated about all these weird places in Pennsylvania and Ohio that were producing steel. Mm. So, so quite imaginative, but thinking about that world outside of growing up. I guess. And... I, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Very different for me. And and people, my sisters, I, I never think we're, we're quite pally still, but my eldest sister at the time, who's, what, five, six years older than me, she was already way off at university, and she used to think I was such a moron, she used to refuse to speak to me. And it wasn't, and, and what, that this is true. It wasn't until uh, I'd gone through my degree and it became clear I was going to go on to do post-grad, particularly my PhD. She suddenly started speaking to me and treating me with respect, which was most, most amusing. I mean, it, it's interesting when, when you look at the stories of, of the people I interview is that quite often, and I was saying to you, this to you off air, is that quite often their lockdown lists really reveal things about <laughs> their character. And and I think you, yours is no exception because, I mean, you know, you don't need me to tell you the esteem that you're held with in, in the business and political world as an, as an economist. But all of your heroes are very physical heroes. They're footballers. They're they're George Best. They're Dennis Law. They're Alex Ferguson. I mean, you know, people might have expected you to have like sort of reeled off a few world famous economists. But in terms of that that sporting interest, I always remember my my favourite um, Alex Ferguson line was I went to listen to him when he wrote his book, and he and he, he used this line to I've never played for a draw in my life. And I thought if that doesn't tell you something about attitude and character. I don't know what does. What what is it that's in sporting characters that an economist sees that perhaps he doesn't see in the political, economic, or business world? Wow, what a fascinating question! You know, I, I love the the thing about sport, particularly football, and I played a lot of football. I, I, I was completely obsessed with football. In fact, you know, I was one of these. I actually played at Old Trafford for Manchester Schoolboys, and I, I, you know, like anybody at those eight years, I had this ridiculous dream that that was what I was going to be. And when I didn't make the final hit, I think eight of the team I played in got signed up by clubs, and I, I was kind of like felt like an idiot and mortified. But frankly, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me that I didn't, because none of the only one of them ever sort of really made it big as such, and that wasn't for very long. But anyhow, um, you know what? what I'll give you two parts of answering this really interesting question. I think on on a football field, you, you can see in your own team who's really who's really trying to put in proper effort. Mm. And there's something there's something about 
the spirit and camaraderie of a, of a team-based sports game that you just I, I just haven't found that you can replace in many other walks of life and it, mm. it's, in that sense it's very honest honest i mean i suppose and it's it's the feel of it we were also talking about how you know you had the manchester pink in 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 manchester yes. which was which was the you know the the free sheet that came out after the after the game, we had the green and in Sheffield. I remember that too because I was at university. There, you were at yeah. the university, there. but they were miracles of of the game in some respects because that you know you'd be there minutes afterwards getting those getting those sort of newspapers, pretty pretty weighty newspapers as well in terms of the amount of information. And I suppose they brought the uh, the drama to life. I mean, I think that it takes me to the second thing really that obviously it partly reflects the nature of your upbringing. I, I had a slightly peculiar family background that my mother came from a Cheshire farming family and my dad came from a let's call it an inner inner Manchester not so not so well established family and they're an odd pair but they never had any money and we went to uh you know normal schools in pretty tough places and uh and so you you obviously you want to fit in and you mix by all of those so in my teenage years everybody wanted in Manchester because I was raised in the era of Lord Best and Charlton, everybody wanted to be George Best, mm-hmm. you know, including me. Um, and, you know, I had mates of mine who, who who had sisters that George Best had, let's just say, enjoyed the company of. And, and you know, he had all these uh, trendy uh, uh, clothes stores and God knows what. And, it, and, you know, those things had a huge influence on you growing up. And mm. the idea that there's some kind of great philosopher or an economist that, would influence my development. I'm like, get out of here. Okay, so that so 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 that was the role of sport. It was mm-hmm. the it was the honesty. It was the romance. It was it was I guess the ship, the passion and excitement. I mean, incredible. Did did you find? I mean, obviously, you know, you, it, it feels to me that you are a very passionate economist. I mean, I've heard you speak. I mean, I mean, you've got this creative ability to bring complex ideas to life. I mean. Wh- I suppose the question is, was there a light bulb moment where you thought I can throw some of this kind of passion and identity into something like this, which on the face of it is a very dry, you know, sort of very bookish um, career and, and, and interest to take? So I'll, 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 I'll now take my answer to this down a sort of a path I haven't, I probably not taught that openly to, to many people. I think, I think most classically trained economists would, would probably regard me as a bit of a fraud. Because I'm, I, I'm not in. You know, to be, I, I don't think economists are that smart. That the ones that I've generally come at, they, they all think they're smart, um, mm. and they don't accept for a start that it's a social science. And you know, economics doesn't know the answer to hardly any of the things that it often claims it does. Um, it, it, it has this brilliant ability to explain things that are going on, and I do think there's something rather powerfully basic about uh, the price mechanism allocating scarce resources. But this notion that economists can confidently and repeatedly predict what's going to happen in the future is just sort of ridiculous. But this, despite despite what's happened the past 20 years or so, so many of them do. And mm. it's, it's kind of mad. And so I remember in, in the early days of my professional life, a couple of foreign exchange traders would call me a dirty economist, and actually, I rather quite like that. <laughs> and and I guess what I'm really what I'm really getting at, and and, and it did influence me because 
what I what I somehow and it might be a, a reflection of my love of sport, but also my partly my background um, of, of of living with this different father background, different mother background, no money, and but somehow getting into the university system that made me realize that big things can be done if you just really focus on the the key simple parts of what makes them such challenges mm. and a, and a lot of big problems get overcomplicated by so many people and and I used to find it a lot of at Goldman with a lot of people there was so so classically really bright but in terms of the issue they were trying to deal with every day or every week, they weren't very savvy or very sensible. Mm. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm wondering, did did that kind of that being grounded, applied common sense? I mean, did that is that I'm I'm thinking is that part of the formula? I, I'd never thought of it that way, but that's quite probably it. Because I'll tell you why. I mean, I, I mean, I I would describe you, Jim, as a, as a leader, and and I mean, and you commented on on leaders on 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 lockdown. You know, you you meant you, you know you mentioned. Um, Obama and you know, you've met many presidents, prime ministers. But um, what I loved was that your usual reaction is rather than the kind of the awe of, of the grandeur of state or whatever it might be is one earth motivated them to become a national leader. I mean, I mean <laughs> give us a bit more in terms of why, why you felt like that. Well, because the, from my experience and I, you know, I probably, I think I've met uh, uh, three ex us presidents and I, I think I've met every, uh, every prime minister going back to uh, Maggie Thatcher's days, and 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 of course, having spent seventeen months as a minister in a government, you just see how utterly um, obsessive the narrow world in which everything they have to decide and do is. Mm. And I, I'm just kind of, you know, the obviously the obsession with power. Uh, an influence must be something there, but I, I, I and, and of course it, somebody's got to do it, and we, of course, we've had great leaders, and we will get great leaders. But I'm just not quite sure of the sort of personality traits that that lead to people wanting to do those things. And I'm like, Ugh. did your own time in government leave you more positively or negatively, sort of um, about the experience and about, I guess, the idea of the politician in in society? So I, I am I I have absolutely no regrets about uh, my extensive seventeen month experience, but deciding to leave was one of the easiest calls I ever made in my life. Uh, why why I, was that? Well, because I, I I first of all the whole role of being a minister in the House of Lords essentially requires you because the peculiarities of many peculiarities about the House of Lords you're just basically on call uh, to vote at anywhere from three till three o'clock till midnight any any tuesday through friday sorry any monday through thursday and it, it it meant i had to be completely abandon my personal life so in that sense it was it was more annoying than aspects of Goldman. not not least because it was a, a often a, a load of stuff i didn't care less about but, but i suppose that's the experience the character though i suppose so the more substantive the, the more substantive thing is what i what i couldn't believe is the the repeated signs of many politicians that they were just in it for the game mm. and they didn't they didn't really have a philosophy and they didn't really want to stick to the principles of of some philosophy they just wanted to know where they were in the pecking order of their party and where they were going next and it seems to me very shallow mm. 
I mean, I'm I'm so sorry. We're on to my 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 last part. Of my question. I could go on for for a lot longer, but I was also looking at the lockdown list. I was thinking, where do I get that last question? Because I I know you're watching <laughs> The Sopranos, but but I did love the fact that on your lockdown um, song choice list um, was the uh, Foo Fighters cover version of Times Like These. Oh, I love it. I love and it. And in Times Like These, you learn to live again. Yeah. I mean, finish that thought for us in terms of Jim and coronavirus. What have you learned about yourself? What do you think about that that next chapter, that next next phase? I mean, I love there's something about the way that uh, track was put together and all the people in it. And, and I have to say, contrast that with the the other one that's just come out recently of Children in Need. It, I, I could be declaring a bias here because, of course, uh, Noel Ga- the Gallagher brothers are Manchester City fans, so I'd never really the noisy like, ones. Yeah, exactly. But but but. <laughs> I think there's something beautiful about it, but underlying it, the theme about how we learn to live again is kind of in some ways a close cousin of always try your best. Yeah. I was going to ask you, is it try your best? Yeah. You know, it kind of, you know, I've been through many, many crises, economic crises in my uh, professional life. And what I've obviously lived to tell so far the tale is that you get out of the other side. And so you know, I see so many people that, that sort of unfortunately struggle with this view that we're now in crisis forever. And I know that that's not true. And as I go back to what I said earlier, that how you think about some key matters and how you yourself choose to behave differently as a result of some developments is, is going to really have a material influence about yourself and those close to you and others going forward. And that, that's what I've learned again. Jim O'Neill, thank you very much for joining me on Changemakers. And there you have it. Learn to live again. Try your best. It's all anyone can ever really ask of you. And doing your best in tough times is where you learn a lot about yourself and the world in which we all live. And thanks to my guest today, Lord Jim O'Neill. He's definitely done his best with a powerhouse performance and an energetic glimpse into the what might come next and part of his story. And for more stories about the shape of things to come, do join me again on The Changemakers. Changemakers.